The morning was filled with a cold mist on October 12, 1915. Eight German soldiers peered down the rifles, taking aim at the individuals who'd been sentenced to death. Standing in front of the soldiers was a woman dressed in her nurse's uniform and a man, a Belgian resistance fighter. Both were loosely tied to poles in a grassy, dampened field. Just as the soldiers were told to get ready, the resistance fighter named Philippe Bolk yelled out, Vive la Belgique! Almost immediately, the soldiers began to fire simultaneously at the condemned. Both bodies slumped forward. Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, this is going to be episode 35, the story of Edith Cavell. Obviously, by now, if you're a follower of the podcast, you'll know this isn't a religious-based type of show. It's purely World War I history, or at least my dumbed-down version of it. However, this episode is about Edith Cavell and... Edith Cavell's life revolved around religion. So you have to talk about faith and spirituality when, when telling her story. As you'll learn, Edith's faith in the Lord is what fueled her courage up to her last dying breath. There's not many people today who live a strong spiritual life like Edith did. Myself, well, it's complicated. I have my beliefs, which you know, they get stronger over time with age, but I have traveled down some dark roads. I think that's the easiest way I can put it. Almost every person has different chapters in life that they flip through. Some chapters are good, but some are bad, such as bad childhood, homeless, pandemic, divorce, poverty, war, I mean, all sorts of other things that can make a person question their faith or their belief that there's something good looking over them or something better on the other side. I think you get my point. Take the soldiers of this war. By now, I'm sure many soldiers in the trenches began to question faith. This war prompted many to question whether God even existed. But questions like this never came into Edith's mind. She was devout to the Lord. She lived by the words daily and expressed her beliefs, even up until the end. And she lived during a time where she had seen a lot of terrible things. But you know what? Let me pump the brakes a little bit. Before I get into Edith's life, let me get a couple of show notes out of the way. I hope you all enjoyed the 1915 Italian Front series. A lot of time went into the research and it was well worth it. I love learning more and more about it and it will be coming back in when I get into 1916, which is actually coming up really soon. There's probably only a couple more episodes left for 1915 and then I'll jump right into 1916, which is going to start with Verdun. I don't know how I'm going to approach this yet, but um, as always, I will figure it out. Uh, my life side, my life, did I say that right? Life size. I was going to say life size. My life side. Uh, I just finished the semester off at school, so I get to breathe for a few weeks. I did take a trip to visit a couple of my pals from the military, my ranger buds. We had a blast, uh, a hell of a lot of laughs. We drank a lot. We even got tattooed. Uh, we had, it was just some great times. I look forward to the next one. Uh, my wife and I just took a short little vacation or some, some of you might call it a holiday. We went to Las Vegas. Uh, it had been a few years since we last went to Vegas. We just relaxed by the pool. We ate good food. We seen a show. Uh, we rode some dune buggies in the desert, which was really fun. I don't know if my wife really enjoyed that, but I sure did. Uh, it was a much-needed getaway, and I'm feeling pretty refreshed, I'll tell you that. Here's the thing. When you live a busy life filled with school, work, home life, 
and anything else that consumes your time on a weekly basis, you must take some time to relax and refresh your mind. If you do not, you will crash and burn. So everything is good on that front. Actually, I take that. um, So it is Sunday, June 20th, Father's Day here in America. As I'm recording this episode, last Wednesday, you won't believe this, but my dog got coronavirus. Long story short, Wednesday, he was coughing kind of weird. English bulldogs naturally get pneumonia. It's pretty, it's pretty common. So immediately the the next day, I thought he was getting pneumonia, took him to the vet. They took some blood work, put him on some antibiotics. And we got a call yesterday. The nurse was a little worked up and she said, your boy has doggy coronavirus. And my, my wife and I were, needless to say, we were shocked because we didn't know dogs could get coronavirus, but they can. And he has the coronavirus. <laughs> so as crazy as that is, it's a crazy world, man. Um, let me see here. For the oh yeah, let me introduce here what I got. What am I drinking for this episode? So I went to uh, our little beer store. I was looking for an English beer in honor of Edith Cavell. Believe it or not, my local stores <laughs> did not have any, which is kind of odd. So I got a Belgian beer, a Chimay. I believe this is a triple. It's the Chimay White. So I have actually hadn't had a beer in a while. So I'm not going to lie. This is probably going to taste real good. Again, this is the Chimay White. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is a strong beer. I mean, to put it like that. Good, though. I haven't had a... I have not had a beer in a while. So, all right. Quick and simple. Let's say we get the show started. Uh, before I go on to Edith... I want to discuss the Imperial German Army. I still stand by what I said when I first started this podcast, and that is, I don't believe Germany should have been solely blamed for this war. After what I've read, if I was on a jury, I still think Russia provoked this war and eventually politicians pushed Germany into a corner. They had no choice but to fight, so they initiated the Schlieffen Plan. And the Schlieffen Plan was based off strategically striking first in the West through Belgium. That was their plan when the war broke out. I think it's horrible that at the Paris Treaty, all the Allied nations ganged up on and pointed the finger at Germany, saying it's your fault. Germany's argument was, we weren't the only ones fighting in this war. And that's the truth. They were not the only ones who fought in this war. But I also try to keep this podcast non-biased. I try to keep it fair. With that being said, the Imperial German Army did some horrible things. They committed war crimes during this war. The rape of Belgium, and now this. The execution of a nurse, Nurse Edith Cavell, who did her duty by nursing those in need, both friendly and foe. Her crime was conducting soldiers to the enemy. The Imperial German Army was founded in 1871 when they became a unified state, or when they became Germany, to to better put it. They had this sort of barbaric approach to war. They were hard-charging, and executing a woman or a nurse was not an issue for them, whereas other nations might not be so quick to execute a woman or a nurse. Germany's prosecution team claimed she was helping the enemy by nursing them back to health and sneaking them back to the battlefield. And to be fair, she was. This is true, as you'll hear. Now, you'll have to form your own opinion if the execution was justified or not. I personally feel that it was not justified. Edith was born on December 4th, 1865 in Swartiston. Her father, Reverend Frederick Cavell, was a vicar. Religion was part of her life right out the gate. Prayers started and ended the day in the Cavell house. Caring for others is also what they did. It became a routine for the Cavell children to take hot meals around the town to to nearby parishioners if needed. Conditions were harsh for many families during this time. It was in this way that Edith learned to care for others. When Edith was eight years old, 
Norfolk was the setting for one of the worst railroad disasters in British history. A head-on collision at the Norwich station on September 10, 1874, resulted in nearly 100 deaths. Citizens claim the sound of the collision sounded like thunder. This was Edith's first experience of mass casualties. And if you've ever been exposed to a mass casualty situation, you'll know that it can create a disturbance in people's minds, or it can trigger something that makes them want to help others in the time of need. This event is instilled the yearning to care for others into Edith. For the past year, I've been dealing a lot with EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. These people have the yearning to help people in distress. Where we're taught as kids to run away from fire, but these are the people who run towards it, EMTs and paramedics alike. It's a passion for them to help and save people. Edith really grasped onto this train of thought. It became her life ambition along with her faith. Now, between the time when Edith was a younger girl to the time when the Great War broke out, which she was in her 40s by that time, she lived a very straight and narrow life guided by faith. <laughs> Edith definitely didn't spend her Sundays the way I spent mine as a young man. Sometimes waking up in strange places, or waking up feeling like your head got kicked by a mule, which it might have, waking up desperately looking for some cold water or cold Sprite, and the only thing that can cure you is greasy food or a cold pizza. I did pray, though. Only it was on both knees into a toilet, claiming to God I would never repeat that night again, which I always did. But not Edith. Nope. She taught Sunday school, she raised money for the church, then found herself attending nursing school. And nursing school back then was much different compared to today. Back then, they basically put a woman in a nursing uniform and she worked her way up from cleaning to caring, 100% on the job training, hands-on training. And basically, after a certain amount of time, which was usually in, in years, maybe two to four years, they labeled a person a nurse with a certificate. The medical field uh, back then was different. The reality was that after so many years of being trained by other nurses and doctors and doing on the job, they got the title. There was no GOAT lab, no technical schools, no state boards, no registered anything. Nothing like that for women back in her days. This is how they did it. The hospitals awarded certificates when they felt it was time. I'm sure I'll be doing an episode in the future on medical care for the Great War. But think about how much we've come, say, from 1914 to 2014 in medical care. In that 100-year span, so many advancements have been made. Yet, when you think about 1814 to 1914... I'm sure there was advancements, but nothing on the level of the next 100 years. In 1896, Edith got assigned to a hospital in the slum district of Whitechapel. Now, talk about a dicey place. I'm sure Whitechapel was nice today, but back then, the fact somebody actually labeled a part of Whitechapel the slum district is horrifying because Whitechapel itself was probably anything but nice. This is where Jack the Ripper struck between 1888 and 1891. There was prostitution, murder, gangs, sanitation wasn't the best, VD was flowing like salmon up a river. The streets were rough and dirty. It was not a safe place to be alone. This definitely was a test to Edith's faith, as I'm sure if you use your imagination, you can imagine what she had seen inside and outside the hospital. A doctor by the name of Frederick Trevis also worked at this hospital. He was renowned for the surgical treatment of appendicitis, which saved the life of King Edward VII and he also treated the elephant man until his death in 1890. Um, I must have been maybe four to five years old, maybe six, somewhere around there when I first watched the elephant man. And uh, it, <laughs> it really messed me up. 
I completely lost my appetite. I was already skinny, so this didn't help. I seriously was not eating for weeks. My mom would try to force feed me, but the thought of food after watching that movie just made me sick and I just couldn't do it. They took me to the doctor and back then doctors would kind of smack you around and stuff. I remember he was yelling at me, telling me to eat. Uh, it took some time to recover from that movie. <laughs> Very strange fact and off topic, so let me move on. In the summer of 1897, a typhoid fever epidemic broke out in Maidstone, a town southeast of London. Edith was one of six nurses from the London hospital sent to help. Of the 1,700 patients diagnosed with the fever, only 132 died. Now, that's actually really good numbers for 1897, and much of the credit was given to the 250 nurses who came to help. Once her work was done, she returned to the hospital and completed her two years training, earning her London Hospital Certificate in September of 1898. Her final year with the hospital was appointed as staff nurse for the men's surgical ward on December 31st, 1899, just in time to ring in the new century. Again, Edith had some real world experience and a lot of hands-on training. Whitechapel was not a place to be back then. Edith got to see the worst of it firsthand. Seeing death had become very common to her, which played an important role in how she conducted herself the night before her execution. That night, she said, I have seen death so often that it is not strange or fearful to me. Now, let me fast forward just a tad. In 1907, Edith had been contacted and was invited to become Belgium's first nurses training school's matron. And she accepted. And there was a reason for this. Britain was excelling in nursing practices and training at a rapid pace. Yet Belgium was behind the times when it came to nursing care. It was still being done by nuns who believed in the power of prayer over medicine and sanitation. So a Belgian surgeon out of Brussels named Dr. Antoine DePage took action to start an independent nursing school. He contacted Edith, and this is how she ended up in Belgium. In the summer of 1914, weeks before war was declared, Edith had gone home for some much-needed rest and also to spend some time with her mother. She was with her mom when the Archduke was assassinated. On August 1st, Edith received a telegram from the school alerting her to the situation in Belgium and that war was imminent. She didn't hesitate to return, saying, At a time like this, I am more needed than ever. She arrived back in Brussels on the 3rd of August. By August 4th, Britain was at war with Germany, with no guarantees that Belgian neutrality would be respected. Edith put Red Cross flags all around the training hospital. And one of her first tasks was to send all German nurses back home for their own safety. After this, she prepared the training hospital to receive patients. Edith was concerned about her mother's worries, and she wanted to put her at ease. She wrote to her mom on the 17th of August, saying, All is quiet at present. We live under martial law, and it is strange to be stopped in the street and have your papers and identity examined. If you should hear the Germans are in Brussels, don't be alarmed. They will only walk through as it is not a fortified town and no fighting will take place in it. Besides, we are living under the Red Cross, end quote. As you know by now, hundreds of thousands died in the first months of war. Belgian and French troops fought with everything they had to hold the grounds in Lorraine, Ardennes, Namur, Charleroi, and Mons, where the British Expeditionary Force joined in. On the 23rd of August, 674 men, women, and children were lined up in the city square of Dinant and shot because they were believed to be dangerous, just like French soldiers. Two days later in Louvain, the town was set ablaze and the citizens of all ages, again, men, women, and children, were executed. Liège also received the same treatment. In total, it's believed the German killed an estimated 23,700 Belgian civilians. By the fall of 1914, 
the number of Belgian and French resistance fighters was rapidly growing and becoming organized. The resistance was helping wounded soldiers, soldiers escape back to safe grounds. Through written accounts, it's believed British and French troops recovering from the Battle of Mons took shelter in the 30,000-acre forest of Mormal near the Franco-Belgian border. Some of the injured found their way to the castle of Beligny, home of Prince Reginald de Croix and his sister, Prince Mary. Prince Marie, I'm sorry. The prince nursed them back to health alongside German casualties. When German officers arrived to the castle, they demanded to have all the British bandages removed to prove they were actually injured. When the prince and princess were forced to feed the officers, they first had to taste every dish to ensure the Germans it wasn't poisoned. Marie's beliefs were much like Edith's in that she was there to save lives, not take them. The Germans did not at all trust the Decroix. And they probably had their reasons not to. The Decroix played a crucial part in the resistance movement. They had people search the forest and the, looking for wounded Allied soldiers. They would rescue and care for the soldiers, hide them, and then sneak them back to safety. By the fall of 1914, Brussels was being watched by a very close eye from the Germans. Every able Englishman or boy who appeared to be a threat was imprisoned. Even after the atrocities committed by the Germans onto the Belgian citizens that summer, it was well known. Edith began to test the waters of a very dangerous game. She began assisting with helping wounded soldiers escape over to the Dutch border. Word of Edith's role in this made its way to, De to the Decroix. The prince paid her a visit and explained that there were many wounded men hiding in the forest that needed medical attention. Now, most people would ask, why would she risk her life at this point? This all goes back to Edith's faith and her belief in her duty as a nurse, and that was always to help those in need, friend or foe. By November, every week she was assisting with soldiers escaping after caring for them, and she took full responsibility for this. Here's a good story from one of the soldiers she saved. After the Battle of Mons, Sergeant Jesse Tunmore and a private had become the sole survivors of their platoon. They were part of the Norfolk Regiment. They were treated at a convent and then were given civilian clothes as a disguise and sent to Edith's training hospital. Tunmore spent Christmas of 1914 in Edith's care. Edith eventually helped Tunmore escape by foot. I think she took extra care for him because he was from Norfolk. Tunmore was ever grateful for what Edith did and never forgot it. When her body was finally repatriated, Tunmore was one of the pallbearers to her final resting spot in Norwich. Years later, he told a biographer about how Edith helped him in a private escape, saying, She herself at dawn one morning guided me and Private Lewis through the streets of Brussels onto the Louvain Road. No one else of her staff did anything like this. I know that for certain. It was she herself, too, who took the photos for certificates of identity for us, and she herself went to the necessary department and fetched backpack and identity cards. She also gave us food and money to use for bribing and traveling by railway. End quote. Uh, I want to read a couple more writings to Edith's mother from soldiers she helped. The first saying, I was a wounded soldier and was taken prisoner in Belgium, where I escaped from. I was passing through Brussels, and your daughter kept us in hiding from the Germans for 15 days and treated us very kindly. She got us a guide to bring us through Holland, and we arrived in England quite safe. The other soldier wrote, She treated me as my own mother would have done and proved herself to be the be very best friend I ever had. I am not the only English soldier that your daughter befriended. There are four more in my regiment besides the men of other regiments she helped. End quote. I think you can see the more she helped soldiers escaped, it was becoming a very dangerous situation for her and others. You know, it's almost, I was going to say irresponsible, but that's, that's not the word I'm looking for. Here's the thing. 
Edith's ethics and morals, her duty as a nurse was to care for the wounded and sick. And she was probably one of the best nurses there on the ground at that time. Clearly, as a patriot, she naturally wanted to get the Englishmen back to safety. I get that. In fact, I think most would do this for their countrymen and women. I just think she got sucked into this web of this underground network, almost like working as a British secret agent. And here's another thing. The Imperial German Army was not stupid. By now, they were very suspicious of Edith and the movement. They had eyes everywhere. Spies were embedded all around Brussels. They knew what was going on, and they were catching people, both escapees and those who helped, and they were executing them. Edith was a huge asset to the hospital. Again, she was probably the best nurse in Belgium at that time. After she nursed the wounded, why didn't she have the members of the movement take it from there? Like a phase system. You know, phase one, they would escape captivity. Phase two, Edith and or the other nurses would get them better. Phase three, you hand them off to those who will help them escape. No, Edith was playing jack of all trades. She was out there on foot helping them escape too. It, this was crazy. I don't know if that makes sense what I'm saying. I hope it does. Edith had her hand in the whole cookie jar, not just a portion of it. And it was very dangerous. Anywho, by March of 1915, the resistance movement was very well established. They even had an underground newspaper called La Libre Belgique. See, that's what I'm saying. They have a newspaper for Christ's sake, yet Edith was still doing the legwork. You would think the movement would have been very protective over Edith because she was a medical asset to them. The movement was well established and quite ballsy. They had an agent disguise himself as a German officer. He snuck into the German military governor's office in Brussels and left a copy of La Libre Belgique on his desk. Needless to say, this stirred the pot of anger. I get what the Belgians were doing. I praise them for this. They had an occupying enemy in their home and wanted to fight back. Respect that. But man... You got to have a little more self-control. Uh, there was a lot at stake. A lot of people involved. This was an extremely dangerous game, which if caught meant death. This was a very stupid thing to do, and it only brought on more spies and attention. By summer, the heat was really on them. And I'm not talking about the weather. It's believed between February and July of 1915, Edith arranged for an estimated 100, 170 soldiers escape. However, some believe this to be around 1,000. And by July, more and more fugitives were showing up. Mistakes were being made. Soldiers themselves were becoming careless. While Edith was hiding them in her house, or a group of soldiers, some would go out at night to drink. One night, a group returned drunk singing, it's a long way to Tipperary at the top of their lungs as they were making their way back down the road. Edith barely avoided getting caught as she had to hurry up and get them out of the house and to another safe house. It's stories like this, this that, that make me shake my head and th just think how crazy the situation must have been. I mean, it was insane. She knew the training hospital was being watched. There was an estimated 6,000 German spies in Brussels. She even wrote a letter to her mother saying a Zeppelin flew directly over the hospital one evening, almost to the point where it was very close to touching the roof. It appeared to her as if they were looking for something. Edith could have been paranoid, but why would a Zeppelin almost be on the top of your hospital? Okay, I'm going to be giving several quotes um, with some by Edith. This is very important because she kept a diary recording her experiences in occupied Belgium. However, only a few pages ended up surviving or were ever found. The ones that were found, she had sewn them into a cushion, which were found in the 1940s. It's believed she wrote using a microscope because the script was so small. 
in her letters to her mother, she tried to play down the situation because obviously she didn't want to worry her mom. But in these writings in her journal, she was a little more telling of the real situation. On April 27th, she wrote, The frontier has been absolutely impassable the last few days. Germany and Holland have been on the verge of war. The Dutch refused to allow anyone to cross and had massed their troops and laid mines all along from Maastricht to Antwerp. I hope I said Maastricht right. You probably butchered that. She went on to then say, A sentinel on the Dutch side was posted every 50 meters, and all the young men who had left to try and cross were stuck or came back. End quote. May dealt another devastating blow to the hospital. Marie DePage, the wife of Dr. Antoine DePage, was on board the Lusitania when it was struck by the German U-boat, and she drowned. She devoted her time to also caring for patients at the hospital, and this, of course, was devastating news not only to the doctor, but to all the nurses, including Edith. There's a commemoration to her and Edith called Monument Cavell de Page in Brussels. I just recently found this out. If I would have known this, I would have gone to see it a few years back when I was there. Anywho, so here's where the plot really starts to thicken. By summer, the Germans were very suspicious. Edith knew they were being watched. It became official that the polizei identified Edith Cavell as a suspect. A man named Lieutenant Bergen was head of the Brussels secret police, and under his command was Henry Pinkoff and Otto Meyer. Pinkoff made it his mission to catch Cavell and have her executed. Otto Meyer was sent to investigate the hospital. By mid-June and going forward, the hospital was raided every week. But by this time, Edith had burned most of the records and hid her journals, one being the journal in the cushion. Cavell and the rest of the nurses continued to deny any knowledge of soldiers in their presence. Around this time, Princess Marie de Croix approached Edith and said more soldiers were hiding and waiting to cross the border. Edith's response was, then we cannot stop. Because if a single one of those men were taken and shot, that would be our fault. She agreed to help, hiding them in a network of safe houses. I mean, Edith wasn't going to stop. And with the secret police on your tail, you know it's not going to end well at this point. But let me push forward. Everything went downhill when, excuse my language, a piece of crap named George Gaston Kien arrived at the training hospital. George claimed to be an injured French officer, but he was really a con man who had been in prison for theft when the war broke out. Did I mention George was a piece of crap? Edith immediately became suspicious of George. She knew something wasn't right about this one, but because of her nursing values, she cared for him the same way she did everyone else. George poked around for information on all the activities taking place at the hospital, and when he wasn't doing that, he was flirting with the staff nurses. Edith arranged for his escape at the end of June. On the 29th of July, the con man returned to the hospital. He brought a bouquet of flowers for Edith along with another BS story. This time he was supposedly working with French intelligence. Edith wasn't having it. She refused to let him stay. Shortly after he left the hospital, a nurse seen him talking with German sympathizers. Two days later, he was seen lurking around Philippe Bulk's house. Later that night at 10.30 p.m. on the 31st of July, Bulk and Louis Thulis were arrested. Louise Thulis was another heroic woman, a school teacher, resistance fighter in both the Great War and the Second World War, and an author. When the police searched the house, they found 4,000 copies of La Libre Belgique waiting to be distributed. Louise had been visiting Philippe after leaving six fugitives at a safe house. After reading this, I kind of think Philippe and Louise were hooking up, if you know what I mean. But in her purse, police found her coded address book, a false identity card, and a receipt for lodging six men in four days. One of the safe houses was ran by a woman named Ada Bodart. When news of the arrests reached Prince de Croix, he set off to warn Ada. 
Ada then offered to pass the news to the rest of the resistance fighters. But the police got to Ada before she could warn anyone. On August 2nd, the con man Kien spotted Edith's goddaughter, Pauline. Kien began his flirting and offered to buy her a drink. He then asked if Edith could help get his friend out of Belgium. Pauline was persuaded to pass along this request, which ultimately secured Edith's conviction. A few days later, Otto Meyer and Pinkoff arrested Edith. She was now a prisoner of the German police facing charges of treason. Elizabeth Wilkins, not the English bare-knuckle boxer. This Elizabeth was another nurse. She was arrested too, but released. Otto Meyer told Wilkins that Kian had provided the necessary evidence against them. Wilkins never understood why they released her, but not Edith. And it's really a simple answer. The secret police viewed Edith as the leader of the movement, and this was their ultimate score. Cavell was transferred to, to St. Gile Prison on the 7th of August. Fun fact, George Gaston Kien was put on trial in France in 1919 and convicted for treasonable dealings with the Germans and having betrayed Edith Cavell. You can actually get articles on this, and I believe the actual court documents um, that are archived if you're interested. You'd be surprised what you can find on Google. Edith was interrogated by the head of espionage in Brussels by Lieutenant Bergen, along with Pinkoff. Now, Pinkoff's job was to translate Edith's French to a sergeant who was the clerk and witness for this to be written out in German. Once her statement was taken, Pinkoff translated it back to her in French before she signed it. Otto Meyer was also present. Pinkoff, of course, told Edith, that they had all the information needed and the best way to save the others was to confess everything. Bergen later admitted they tricked her by pretending to know everything. I think that's a typical investigator's tactic even today. There was deceit involved, of course. Edith signed the statement assuming Pinkoff translated it correctly. She was charged with conducting soldiers to the enemy. By the German military code, charges that carried a death sentence. She would go through a couple more interrogations and statements, but it was this that really sealed the deal. On the 23rd of August, Edith's arrest finally reached her family. A lot of people got involved by late August. Edith's brother-in-law wrote to the Foreign Secretary. The Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Gray, then sent a telegram to the American ambassador in London, Brand Whitlock. On the 27th of August, Whitlock wrote the German governor, Baron von der Lacken, but didn't receive a response for 10 days. And when he finally did receive a response, it said, she herself has admitted that she concealed in her house French and English soldiers, as well as Belgians of military age, all desirous of proceeding to the front. Edith was put in solitary confinement. Her last days were spent writing letters. She wrote to the nurses after receiving a letter and flowers from them, and it said, Your delightful letter gave me great pleasure, and your lovely flowers have made my cell gay. The roses are still fresh, but the, I know I'm going to butcher this, this is a fancy flower word, chrysanthemums did not like prison any more than I do. Hence, they did not live very long. I am very happy to know that you are working well that you are devoted to your patients and that you are happy in your services. It is necessary that you should study well, for some of you must shortly sit for your examinations and will want you very much to succeed. The year's course will commence shortly. Try to profit from it and be punctual at lectures so that your professors need not keep waiting. To be a good nurse, one must have lots of patience. Here, one learns to have the quality, I assure you. It appears that the new school is advancing. I hope to see it again one of these days, as well as all of you. Au revoir. Be really good. Your devoted matron, E. Cavell. End quote. Desperate pleas were sent for the release of Edith, but it was useless. Baron von Bissing was replaced by General von Sauberzweig. And this man did not like the English on grounds that his son had been blinded in battle. His argument was that one of the men who escaped from Belgium could have been the one responsible for this. Sauberswig 
appointed military prosecutor Dr. Edward Stober for the trial. 35 accused alongside Edith were sent to the Senate chamber on the 7th of October to face five judges. Edith was the first to be questioned. She admitted helping 200 men to the frontier. Some people later, later claim this number could have been more around 1,000. The entire prosecution cross-examination for Edith was just a dozen questions and answers. Reported by Sadie Kirshen and Rowland Ryder, here is the recorded conversation between Stover and Cavell. So I was going to go back and forth saying Stover, Edith, Stover, Edith, but I think to make this kind of smooth, I think it's pretty easy to pick up who's actually saying what. So this is going to start with Stober. From November 1914 to July 1915, you've lodged French and English soldiers, including a colonel, all in civilian clothes. You have helped Belgians, French, and English of military age in furnishing them with the means of going to the front, notably in receiving them at your nursing home and in giving them money. Yes. With whom were you concerned in committing these acts? With M. Capiao, Mill Martin, Mr. Derval, and Libiez. Who was the head, the originator of the organization? There wasn't a head of the organization. Wasn't it the Prince de Croix? No, the Prince de Croix confined himself to sending men to whom he had given a little money. Why have you committed these acts? I was sent, to begin with, two Englishmen who were in danger of death. One was wounded. Stober took objection to this comment and said that under German military law, this was out of the question, but Edith repeated that she believed they were would have been shot. Once these people crossed the frontier, did they send you news to that effect? Four or five only did so. Balk and Fromage are the same person? Yes. What was Balk's role? I knew him very little. I only met him once, and I don't know what his role was. Do you maintain what you said at the interrogation concerning the people with whom you work with a view to recruiting? That is to say, Prince Reginald de Croix, Bach, Severin, Capgal, Libiez, Durval, Louis Dulis, and Miss Ada Bodart. Yes. Do you realize that in thus recruiting men, it would be to the disadvantage of Germany and to the advantage of the enemy? My preoccupation has not been to aid the enemy, but to help the men who applied to me reach the frontier. Once across the frontier, they were free. How many people have you thus sent to the frontier? About 200. Now, Philippe Bach was not as cooperative as Edith. He voiced his opinion, grudged himself towards the guards and, and such, during his questioning, he called himself a patriot, which infuriated Stober. So by later that afternoon, Stober was just boiling inside. The next day, Stober gave his pr prosecution speech, which lasted for three hours. And in that, he recommended the death sentence for Philippe Balk, Luis Thulis, Edith Cavell, and six others. Edith remained calm the whole time. By the end of the afternoon, Edith was asked if she wanted to speak, but denied the offer. However, Princess Marie de Croix asked permission to speak, and she said the following. Everyone must be prepared to take full responsibility for their acts, and I want to bear full responsibility for mine. It has been said that Miss Cavell was at the head of the conspiracy, that she organized the escape of British and the recruitment of French and Belgians. It is not true. She was forced into it by my brother and me. It was we who at the beginning sheltered and hid these men. When she told us she could lodge no more, that her institution would be endangered if we sent more to her, we still took to her others. And so did our Confederates. It is not on her, but on us, on my brother and me, that the greater part of the responsibility for these acts lies. I am ready to pay the penalty. 
end quote. The judge's verdict was recorded on October 9th, and it states the following. The court is of the opinion, partly on the strength of the prisoner's own statements and partly on the assertions of their fellow prisoners, that Croy, Bach, Dulis, Cavell, Belleville, and Severin were the chief organizers of two seditious groups, one in northern France and one in Bournay, which helped English and French fugitive soldiers and French and Belgians of military age to escape onto Holland, whence they might join the Allied armies. The Chateau at Belligny was the principal meeting place on the way to Holland via Brussels. This had been put at the disposal of the organization by Prince de Croix, his sister giving hospitality to the men, taking photographs of them in order to enable Capial and Dervaux to fake identity papers in which British and French soldiers were stated to be of Belgian nationality. The men were then brought to Brussels and hidden in different places by Cavell until they could not be taken over the frontier by guides hired for this work. Further, in the opinion of the court, most of the prisoners were aware that they were conveying fugitive soldiers and men of military age to the enemy. It was their deliberate intention to supply reinforcements to the hostile, pow hostile powers to the detriment of our own German troops. Monday morning, the 11th of October, came for Edith. Her and the others were taken from their cells to the central hall of the prison. Stoba read the sentences. Philippe Bock, death. Louis Dulis, death. Louis Severin, death. Jean de Belleville, death. Edith Cavell, death. The sentencing was done. A fellow prisoner turned to Edith and told her to make an appeal for mercy. Edith's response was, it is useless. I am English and they want my life. Luis Thulis's sentence was reduced to life in prison after the intervention for the King of Spain, Alfonso, better known as El Africano. She was released in November of 1918. She would work again with Princess Marie de Croix in the resistance movement during the war, Second World War. When Edith returned to her cell, she turned to prayer, reading The Imitation of Christ, and then wrote her last letters, which included one to her mother. I particularly like a quote from the letter she wrote to the nurses. And this quote says, It is a good thing sometimes to stop and look back upon the path we have traveled, to take stock of our progress and the mistakes we have made. End quote. October 12th came. It was a misty autumn morning when the guards opened the cell door. They found Edith kneeling by her bedside in prayer. Her expectation was that, in a blink of an eye, she would be in the presence of Jesus. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. The soldier who tied her blindfold said Edith's eyes were full of tears. Philippe Bach was next to her. When the command was given to the waiting marksman, Philippe yelled out, Vive la Belgique! The shots rang out. Edith died instantly with one shot to her forehead and three through her chest. The medical officer certified the death, closed her eyes, and her body was placed in a coffin, which was then lowered into a waiting grave. The news of Edith's death reached England four days later. Newspapers were flooding with eulogies and calls for vengeance. The Bishop of London, preaching at St. Martin in the Fields, commented that Britain no longer needed a recruitment campaign. Edith's execution was enough. Who will avenge Nurse Cavell? And he was right. Before October, volunteers joining was around 6,000 a week. The week ending for October 27th, it jumped to almost 11,500 with well over 10,000 each week through the end of November. Newspapers in America and around the world began to report the execution of Edith. The British Prime Minister said, 
she has taught the bravest man among us the supreme lesson of courage. After the war ended, a few months later, plans were already being made to bring Edith's body back to England. Her body was exhumed on March 13, 1919. Her features were still recognizable. Post-mortem confirmed that she had been killed by four bullets. The Belgian army guarded the coffin, which was laid on a gun carriage for the journey from Brussels to Ostend, where the Royal Navy took over. Edith's sisters, Florence and Lillian, traveled with the coffin as they were escorted by troops and nurses on the journey home. At Dover, the church bells rang 5,040 changes lasting three hours. On the train journey from Dover to London, country stations were full of men, women, and children, all gathered to pay their respects. Around the world, Edith is remembered by her patriotism. Edith asked to be remembered only as a nurse who tried to do her duty. And that is Edith Cavell's story. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this. <clears throat> the reading material for this episode was called Edith Cavell, Faith Before the Firing Squad by Catherine Butcher. Now, when doing an episode like this, there, there's tons of books out there, especially on Edith Cavell. And I'm, I'm really happy that I picked this one. It's just a fantastic book. And some of you might be saying, well, <laughs> you told us the whole story, but I didn't. I just told you parts of it. And some of this I already knew. There's so much more to this book that goes into her faith, her religion, you know, her spirituality. There's a lot of letters in here to her mother, from her mother to her, letters to nurses. It's just a fantastic book that I didn't even really dive into the main part of it. So I definitely recommend Edith Cavell, Faith Before the Firing Squad by Catherine Butcher, a fantastic book. <clears throat> There's also a movie about Edith Cavell you can find on Amazon Prime. Um, I actually rented it. And Amazon said it had been restored in 2K, um, which is complete BS because when I when I rented it and watched it, I only made it about halfway through because it just took too much energy to, to, to watch this movie. I mean, the quality was just horrible from the picture to the sound. It, it was just, for, to me, it was unwatchable. So that's on you. It's out there on Amazon Prime. If you guys want to watch it, rent it. By all means, please do. I heard it's a great movie. I unfortunately just was not able to do it on my side. Anyways, this is a very long episode, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it right here. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Stay tuned for the next episode, which I believe I'm going back to Gallipoli. All right, folks, until the next time, take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.